Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all back again. It's good to see folks with us. Good to see the energy. Uh, hopefully, you guys are able to have your snacks for later this afternoon for Super Bowl. Apparently, I don't know if like the entire city is throwing Super Bowl parties because I was at Trader Joe's yesterday and I've never seen it that packed. Like it was so packed. I think everyone's getting their snacks. So hopefully, you've got yours.、Um, But I want to highlight something that we're planning to do this、uh, spring, and I acknowledge that some of you have just recently connected with Vox, and we're trying to do a better job of connecting you all, and also just bringing you along the journey of、uh, where we've been、uh, over the last few years, and even when we started. And so, whether it's you know、uh, contemplative practices, whether it's relational tools, whether、uh, it's reflecting on our theology, and so、um, this spring. We're planning to offer a monthly workshop、uh, as a way to introduce you to some of the, the practices and some of the tools that we found to be very formative for us.、Um, and these are things that help, hopefully, help us embody just a, a healthy balance between contemplation and action. That as we are able to discover and find groundedness in God, that we can actually move into the world and engage、uh, with justice and peacemaking. So. Uh, I think we have a slide with some some dates, or maybe not. Yeah, okay.、Um, so in two weeks, or in a couple weeks, on February twenty sixth, on a Saturday,、uh, David Wallace and, and Anna、uh, they're going to be leading the、uh, the Centering Prayer Workshop.、Uh, so it's a great opportunity.、Um, they do an amazing job、uh, facilitating that. So if you're unfamiliar, or even if you are, and you just need kind of、uh, a chance to reconnect with that practice,、uh, this will be a great opportunity.、Um, and you can hit the sign up. Uh, page on our、uh, our website to sign up for that,、um, and then in March,、uh, Amy Wolfgang and myself will be co-hosting a workshop on nonviolent communication,、uh, which is an, a really an important tool that we found、uh, in having challenging conversations, especially in uh, polarizing uh, environments. And then in April,、uh, Jenna will be facilitating a theology workshop for us,、uh, just some of the reflections that we've been navigating over the years. And then in May, Christopher will be hosting、uh, an Enneagram workshop. So we just wanted to get that on your minds that this is something that we are intentional about just over this spring, and hopefully you'll have opportunities to connect,、um, just discover what's you know been helpful for us in our journey, and hopefully it'll be the same for you. So、uh, definitely you know check out the website for more information,、uh, and we can also answer any questions you might have.、Uh, but this morning,、um, I'm excited. That we're finally going to have、uh, our, our newest member of our pastoral team speak,、uh, and you know we've had a lot of starts and stops, and I think even though he came on officially、uh, in December, he's never had a chance to speak with people in front of him. So we're very excited for that. So let's give it up for Christopher. It is good to look out and see some faces, even if all those faces are masked at the moment. And、uh, I did. I appreciate the hype. Way I do sort of feel like it was kind of like this person is not really very socially adept. So if you could just give him all the grace that you have, because、uh, this is their first time to ever interact with people.、Uh, so good to good to be with each and every one of you、uh, this day. Uh, I wanted to start us off with a question. Give some time, both for those who are here in person, for those who are joining us、uh, online, to interact with the chat、um, with this question: What is a particularly memorable 
and it can be, but doesn't have to be Super Bowl or not. You know, that's why it's in parentheses, uh, commercial for you. So it may just have been the first thing that when I asked that question, the first commercial that popped into your head. If you want to give it a little bit of further thought, you can, but uh, take some time if you feel comfortable sharing with those around you. And then when we join back in about a minute, I will ask for some of you if you're willing to share aloud what you came up with. What is a particularly memorable, parentheses, Super Bowl, close parentheses, commercial? What is a particularly memorable, parentheses, Super Bowl, close parentheses, commercial? What are some things that were shared? Yeah. I'm sure the entire international community appreciates that you sort of recontextualize that what we're celebrating today is not actually football. You know, that there's... uh, soccer or international football. And yeah, that, uh, that sense of being, I've, I've had similar experiences. It's like, oh, okay, that's just a normal everyday toothpaste commercial. Okay, nudity is what happens. Great, let's go. Uh, wonderful. Any others, memorable commercials or Super Bowl commercials? It did. It made such a difference. Uh, you know, many people sort of say uh, sort of the, the resurgence, the Betty white that we uh, experienced was initiated by that uh, 2010. Remember that Snickers commercial where uh, she's out there among some otherwise mostly like 20-something, 30-something guys, and she's just like drilled into the ground in this tackle football game, but just bounces back up like, you know, of course, 80-year-old women just get tackled like that and it's nothing. Uh, and then is given the Snickers bar, you know, and it's like, you're not you when you're hungry. And she turns back into this, you know, 30-something-year-old man. Uh, so it launched a whole thing. Yeah, it's a great one. Any others? <laughs> What's up? I don't know how, maybe that was, I don't know. I, how did we, any of us forget that? That felt like maybe, like, I didn't even think of that. But that is so, so iconic. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if iconic is the right word, but it's definitely something. I, none of us should, uh, <laughs> should, should ever forget that. Uh, for me, the first... Super Bowls I remember watching were in the early 90s. Uh, I don't actually remember the iconic uh, Pepsi Cindy Crawford commercial where she steps out of the red Lamborghini and walks over to this sort of like old-fashioned gas station and gets a Pepsi out of the vending machine. And these two teenage boys are just like, you know, awestruck and affixed. And you're thinking like, yeah, Lamborghini, like supermodel, of course. And, you know, she's just drinking this and it's just, you know, everything that you could imagine. And at the very end, they're just like, you know, yeah, check out that new Pepsi can, right? You know, like it's, this is the thing. And I didn't, I don't ever remember actually seeing that, but my guess is the reason why in church youth group uh, at the church that I went to in Austin, when we had Super Bowl parties, there were actually pre-taped commercials that they would play during the Super Bowl. Might be in part, like with that, you know, they were trying to protect us from possibly being exposed to, I don't know, life uh, by showing uh, these other commercials that they could know that the commercials that they had curated were going to be, I guess, appropriate, whatever uh, that means. Uh, When I was packing up my things in San Antonio, getting ready to move here to Austin, uh, I found from like my fifth grade year at Travis Heights Elementary um, a sticker 
from when I was running for student council president that said like my name and then you got the right one baby which is a Ray Charles Pepsi commercial so I guess since I did win the election yes humble brag uh, that uh, I should probably say that's my most memorable Super Bowl commercial because I then you know just shamelessly stole that line uh, and rode that into uh, election dominance or whatever you would say But then I also did think of that Betty White uh, commercial, too, and thought, like, I I grew up watching the Golden Girls, so for me, that's where I will always, like, when it was on NBC, I stand that Betty White. Um, But for many who might not have the same age on them that I have, uh, that may not have been able to be their first introduction. And so when that commercial came and we as a culture got to sort of uh, be in awe of her yet again, um, was a wonderful sense of sort of this resurgence, this resurrection of her career and prominence for us. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of people today are going to gather in a stadium in Los Angeles, as Way kind of already made reference to. If you've been to Trader Joe's or any other place, it's clear that lots of people throughout our city and cities around the country are going to be snacking and gathering in preparation of what might be the most high, holy, uh, secular day uh, on our calendar that is the Super Bowl. Uh, and I wonder for all of us, because it is a thing, you know, I, I like football mostly. I, don't, I haven't really followed the NFL much in the last few years or not nearly as ardently as I once did. But it seems regardless, even if like, I don't care about football, there's still this sense of, but I'm going to watch the commercials. I want to see the halftime show. I need to know what everyone on social media is going to be talking about and what's trending. And if I miss this, then somehow I miss out. There seems to be this longing, this hunger for this collective connection, for touchstones that seem to transcend the other divides that we find among us and within us as a culture, that something like the Super Bowl has the chance or opportunity for us to at least get a little bit of taste of that. Right, that experience of like, oh yeah, this is something that we long for, but in most other institutions and ways that we have known belonging and community uh, in the past, it seems harder and harder to find that. There is that sense that we are separate yet one, that we are unique yet mutually aiding one another. The cheering on mostly 20-year-olds might seem a little simplistic, if not downright silly, as the thing that unites us uh, in, in what we're doing. Uh, these days, moments like that of seeming solidarity uh, can seem so fleeting or even suspect that perhaps it's part of what fuels our hunger for that. In our text for today, Paul is likely having a teachable moment with the church in Corinth. He asked them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Some people believe that Paul is having to take the church in Corinth to task because if you read Paul, you know there definitely are times when Paul's like angry Paul and Paul is going after uh, a community and he's you know, flabbergasted and frustrated uh, at what they're doing. And, and that could be what's happening here. We don't obviously really fully know. But my sense as I read this text is not that 
Paul is berating the church in Corinth so much as he is trying to take this as this moment to say, hey, let's really think about the implications of where some of our community might be heading. uh, and, And let's talk about that and talk about how that affects right now and how that affects uh, our everlasting existence and spirit. Now, immediately, I have to confess to you, uh, and I shared this a little bit with staff on Tuesday, uh, when I looked at all the lectionary text for this week, I was just kind of like, Ugh. <laughs> I don't, and particularly this one was the one that I had the most uh, for, and so I don't know if I'm just a glutton for pain or punishment, but I was like, okay, since I feel like the most resistance within me to this text, then it's going to be the one I'm going to try to to lean into a little bit more and sort of ask myself, what's that about? And so I've I've tried to sit with that, and I think largely for me what that's about is uh, growing up in evangelical spaces, uh, passages like this, 1 Corinthians 15, would have largely, I felt, been weaponized, right, to have this sense of like, so clearly, like the resurrection from the dead, it's just like, no brainer, it happened, you've got to believe it, which means Christianity's right, which means I'm right, which means, you know, you need to bow down to my argument and know that I am the one with power and control, and so there's just all these dominoes internally in me that are falling. And it's like, oh, 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 no, I don't want that. That's not where I want to be. And so try to then say, hey, is that what Paul is doing? And, you know, regardless of whether that is or isn't what Paul is doing, because unless you were here, I don't know that we could know definitively what Paul is doing. Um, how can I hear the Spirit of God breathing through these texts for me uh, for us this day. Episcopalian priest and womanist theologian Kelly Brown Douglas uh, has spent some time articulating her hope and liberation from the perspective of a black woman. She relates a time in her book, Resurrection Hope, that her son was exasperated in response to black death at the hands of both COVID-19 and the police. And he asked her, how do we really know that God cares when black people are still getting killed? How long do we have to wait for the justice of God? I get it that Christ is black, but that doesn't seem to be helping us right now. And it's easy to see her son's point. And it can even be good for us to feel that frustration, that fury, uh, unsettling us in our guts and in our chest. Uh, wondering how long, how long, how long uh, will this continue? But what do we do with that? How do we stay open to the harsh realities surrounding us and the systems we participate and are complicit with, while also not becoming overwhelmed in our desire and work to make of this old world a new world? How does resurrection enter into the conversation without becoming detached from some sort of future try or becoming attached to just only some future triumphalism that just says, yeah, don't, you know, sure, it's going to always be bad right now. There's not much we can do about that, but just someday in the by and by, things will get better. Or, or likewise, uh, in the opposite direction, um, just becomes solely this balm that's about our individual spirituality that just says solely, I just want to give you hope in this moment that God hasn't left you and you can get through this even if the system, the whole world around you seems to be falling apart. Is there some other way that resurrection hope 
can be in conversation with us. And I don't, if, if I had the answer for that, I wouldn't be here. I would be trying to find a much bigger way of communicating that to the world. Uh, so I'd, I want to adjust expectations from the start and be like, oh yes, finally Christopher is going to share with us how we can navigate appropriately all that we've been feeling for the past two or three years or however long. I, I don't have all of that. But what I want to introduce us to through this text is the thought of what does it look like for the resurrection hope that Paul is talking about and proclaimed as central to the message of the way of Jesus How can that be in conversation with our present and our future, with us, yes, as individuals, but also in how we seek to work together collectively? How does that infuse all of those moments and transform the way we look at ourselves and one another and reality around us? And that's the question that that, that we all have to carry with us. That isn't just solely mine or staff's or NAV's uh, to carry, but is for all of us to wrestle with and to enter into and to listen to the conversation that is happening inside of us and around us and to ask how resurrection as a conversation partner begins to influence and permeate those conversations. In Paul's day, uh, there were similar questions uh, about death and also very different understandings about our bodies and our souls. The Epicureans simply said that the soul can't exist without a body. In one of Plato's writings where he imagines this conversation between Sebes to Socrates, he says, they fear that when the soul leaves the body, it no longer exists anywhere, and that on the day when the man dies, it is destroyed and perishes. And when it leaves the body and departs from it, straight away it flies away and is no longer anywhere, scattering like a breath or smoke. The Gnostics believe that our body, this physical matter, was corrupt, and so For those who held that philosophical perspective in Corinth, there would have just been this idea that, no, we we don't want resurrection. We we don't want our decaying, evil, corrupt, like flesh bags to have to come back. Like the whole point is we can't wait to die to be liberated from them. We want to exist in this esoteric, detached, spiritually way apart from them. And so in Paul's own day, the community that he's talking with either might have struggled to believe there was anything beyond death, any kind of existence, uh, and also not have really looked favorably to a message that was saying, hey, there is going to be a physical embodied resurrection that Jesus the Christ physically rose from the grave, that your bodies matter. And that seems to be the point that matters to Paul, that our bodies are not this problem to be overcome, though we know because of disease or because of age, uh, they can feel that way. Some of us may have been born with some debilitating and challenging conditions, and so our bodies have been this thing that have been perhaps at times something that feels like a challenge to overcome. But in Paul's understanding of what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ, there is this sense that Jesus, as God, came into the world, took on our flesh to show us that our embodied existence 
matters, that it's important, that it's sacred, that it's not something to flee, it's not something to see as disgusting or a hindrance to ourselves. It is, in fact, as Paul will talk about in other places in Corinth, it is the very temple of God. It is the place where we encounter the divine. It is, if you're going to look for God, look for God in your own embodied existence. Look for God in the embodied existence of others around you and in our community. In this way, resurrection hope sustains us. We know that the empire is going to always strike back. That's probably the best thing that George Lucas uh, taught us through Star Wars. We can debate that later if you want to. But um, So their empire is always going to push down upon us and around us and make demands for us. In fact, as we know, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, I believe tomorrow, uh, that uh, we know that part of the celebration of that initially was that the Roman Empire in that day said, no, men in the empire, your bodies exist to be fodder for the military industrial complex. That is who you are. So forget marriage. Marriage is not important to you. We don't want you thinking about any life other than a life as a soldier in service to the empire. And that Valentine was someone who said, no, 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 no. God is doing something bigger and other, and our bodies and our lives matter for something far greater than empire. And even though it has been made illegal to continue to do marriages, we will continue to do them because we believe that your lives are so much more than just cogs in the machine that is empire, right? This is what we really celebrate tomorrow, which I'm sure as you're writing cards and buying candy and flowers, et cetera, that was the thing that was on your mind and how you're going to communicate all of that. Resurrection hope sustains us because we are identified both with the crucified Christ in 1 Corinthians 1. That's what Paul really focuses his message on. And then there are these 13 chapters in between. And then now in chapter 15, he's talking about the Christ who empire executed, but who God vindicated. It's very important to Paul that if the Roman Empire executed Jesus, that God has shown the vindication of the way of Jesus, this nonviolent way of loving our enemy, of praying for those who persecuted you, of, as the text in Luke 6 says, blessing the poor and those who are without and are mourning and grieving, that this whole upside-down, subversive way that Jesus is talking about was vindicated by God through the resurrection. That we follow in the footsteps of Jesus who persisted in bringing about righteousness and justice even under the threat of death. Frederick Douglass was a famous uh, and well-known formerly enslaved abolitionist and speaker, uh, obviously in our time, but even in his own. Uh, And in this kind of hard work, during a time where the nation debated his humanity and the rights of Africans, he understandably became discouraged and frustrated and on the verge of feeling defeated. His black life, black bodies, black flourishing did not seem to matter. It was also painfully elusive. And it was in this space of exhaustion that he gave voice to his pain. Before a full house, he rightly lashed out at the appalling evils and indignities of slavery In light of all the resistance Douglas had witnessed, 
he arrived at a despairing conclusion that the majority of white population would never decide to end slavery. And so thus, Douglas conceded that the only despondent option he could see was for a violent armed uprising of the enslaved population of America. But he saw that as both despondent because he wasn't necessarily in favor of a nonviolent action, but also because he concluded, and it's not going to work. Like the, I think the only hope is for the enslaved people of America to rise up with guns, but he anticipated that that would mean the wholesale slaughter and eradication of the black population of the United States of America. And so this was a talk that he was giving to abolitionists, and you can imagine the room kind of was going down and down and down and down as uh, he shares all of this. Uh, and the story goes that as he was sharing this, uh, and the whole audience was silenced, and a near immediate response, a shabbily dressed woman rises to her near six-foot stature, towering over Frederick Douglass, and her deep voice booms out in a question that was also a defiant proclamation. Frederick, is God dead? Sojourner Truth rose up in that meeting, feeling the despair, the hopelessness, and simply seeks to interject a conversation partner. Yes, empire is having its way. Yes, death and violence and destruction seem to be winning out. But if God is still in the equation, then how does that change our conversation? Uh, it became such a well-known statement that even on her, uh, the memorial where she is buried, it says that, is God dead at the bottom of that? While Douglas was temporarily startled into silence before he could respond, so Jerner's truth questioned everything about the despair that he was in, while also still making room for it as well. In Jeremiah one of our passages for this week, ask us to root our trust and hope around a life connected to God. It says, thus says the Lord, cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when the heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah envisions hostile and harsh realities, but encourages those who are listening to his word to have roots that will go deep so that they can find sustenance even in the most harsh realities and times. Resurrection hope calls us then to care for creation, community, and ourselves. Jesus' embodied life and victory over death reveals the sacredness of our embodied life. Jesus entering creation reveals the sacredness of all creation, not just humanity, but every living and breathing thing, everything that we see around us 
invites us into God's sacred life. And Jesus' embodied resurrection invites us to reimagine what just treatment of bodies look like, especially bodies marginalized, much like Jesus' own. I want to skip ahead in my slides to... I told them today, I was like, I've got way more prepared than we're going to have time for. So we are going to skip down to uh, a quote from Christina Cleveland, uh, God is a Black Woman, is a book that came out uh, just this past week. Uh, I had a fun time listening to that on audiobook. Uh, and then I want to just read a little bit from, from that. This is from the very big intro- from the introduction, so I still would encourage you to go out and read it. Uh, I'm not spoiling much. But Christina Cleveland talks about this pilgrimage she went on to France to find all of the statues of black Madonnas because she wanted this image of the black sacred feminine and her pilgrimage to see all of them. And so she starts with this. The ropes hung more than 40 feet from the magnificent, unapologetically black and female Madonna. My unapologetically black and female body longed to be near this black Madonna, whom people of diverse races, religions, and eras have recognized as a black and female image of God. Though I was raised in a black family and had spent significant time in black church spaces, the image of a white male God permeated my being. Desperate for a divine image that I related to and breathed hope into my existence as a black person and as a woman, I had to be near this likeness of God that looked like me. Seeing her from a roped-up distance was not enough. I longed to gaze into her mysterious and kind eyes, to witness her unyielding clutch on her precious black boy, to run my fingers along her centuries-old dark wooden body, and to stand before a sacred image of black femininity. Knowing I only had seconds before I was discovered, I made a mad dash across the length of the altar to kiss her wooden feet and quickly look up to receive her gaze, half expecting her to shoot me an approving wink. Now, if you want to know what happens, you have to go out and read the rest of the, get the book, read the rest of the story. But there's a beautiful image of, of her longing, not just to see it from afar, not just to see a PDF, not even to just be in the same room, but to physically ground herself to this object that causes her to jump over these ropes and to not care about the alarms that are wailing as they go off to have the proximity to this, that our physical and embodied lives matter. And so I want us to think, I started off the, the very first slide, there was an image I took of a crane. And if you're around central Austin, you don't have to look far if you're looking up to see those, to see this idea uh, of new buildings that are rising up all around us. And we know that that's a complicated image for Austin as it struggles with what Austin is becoming and who is being displaced uh, and et cetera. But, but I wondered if every time, uh, perhaps a practice for us, when we see that, that could be an invitation for us to think about our own embodied life. And there are many practices that you could choose. It could just be to next time you see a crane to take a few seconds to focus in on your breathing. It could be that there is some mantra around the sacredness of your life and of all life that you want to remind yourself about 
There could be any number of things that you do, but just to infuse our lives this week with this reality that because Christ has risen, empire is ultimately going to be defeated. And part of what I discovered in studying through this passage was Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection or of the dead, not of the resurrection, which implies that he is the first, but that all who are dead are going to rise. It is not that he is the first fruits of the resurrection because then he'd be the first fruits of all who arise. But for anyone who is dead, we all rise with Christ. That is what it would mean that he is the first fruits. And so what does it look like in light of that everlasting reality for us to begin to be centered and grounded and to dig roots as we need to resist empire, as we need to work towards justice, as we need to continue to be anchored by God's hope and love. And so I want to leave us, uh, our prayer uh, is going to be just a couple of quotes from author Cole Arthur Riley. She has a book coming out later this month that I'm really excited for. And there'll also be some breath prayers that I'll invite us into as we close out the homily. She says, if you feel unsafe or rejected in your body for long enough, after a while, it becomes understandable that you might be inclined to forsake it. To be people capable of extending welcome to the body, even those bodies the world discards and demeans, is to be people of profound liberation. Uh, these are found on her social media uh, at Black Liturgies, uh, and she often ends her quotes uh, with an invitation for some breath prayers. And so uh, the first one she has is, inhale, the body is good. Exhale, I will not abandon it. So I want to invite us just to do that for a couple of seconds, to inhale, the body is good. Exhale. I will not abandon it. Inhale, the body is good. Exhale, I will not abandon it. She has one more that I would invite us into. She says, inhale, the sacred is in the physical. Exhale, there is wisdom in this breath. And so inhale, the sacred is physical. Exhale, there's wisdom in this breath. Inhale, the sacred is in the physical. Exhale, there's wisdom in this breath. Amen.